0: Good morning. Hope you've all had your caffeine. Um, And thank you, John Duke-Anthony, for I think this is my fourth or fifth uh, um, uh, uh, time participating in this conference. And and of course, we've done YouTube videos, and we've briefed students. And it's always uh, wonderful interacting with um, your audiences with the approach you take to the region, which is very unique. And thank you, Pat, for everything you do and all the staff at NACUSAR. Um, also a shout out to Gettysburg. My son is a freshman uh, student up in Ithaca. And I've driven through Gettysburg 14 times in the last two months. And my favorite teacher from grade school lives in Gettysburg. And I'm planning to stop off there, so maybe I can uh, add a stop off and see you guys at some point up in Gettysburg. Um, I. Uh, Uh, I have spent um, a 37-year career and have worked all over the Muslim world, particularly as a diplomat and all over Africa, but my academic home, and my research home, and my uh, sentimental home in North Africa has been in North Africa for the entire period, and I lived in that region for 13 years. Um, And uh, I think I'm the (coughs) only American that's done fieldwork in all five Maghreb countries, and I think I know all the fours, and we're a a, a small club uh, uh, enamored with a region that does get short shrift in everybody's books. The Arab world, the United States, the global community ignores North Africa at their own peril. On the positive side, it generates uh, amazing human resources and innovation. And on the negative side, It's where a lot of foreign fighters come from. It's where a lot of migrants come from, destabilizing Europe. Uh, And of course, on the positive and negative side, it's where the Arab Spring emanated from and had its greatest positive and long-lasting impacts in North Africa. I mean, I would argue the Arab Spring is the most important event in our region since the Iranian Revolution. And it's going to have as long or longer legs than the Iranian Revolution did. Um, And so, again, we ignore it at our own peril. We also, if you include Egypt and Sudan, we're talking about the majority of the Arab world, yeah. and the majority of the Arab world's surface, and and, and, and a huge percentage of its resources. Uh, if we take Egypt and Sudan out, we're still talking about a third of the Arab world, uh, which again garners I would estimate less than 10 or 15% of, of uh, U.S. engagement in resources uh, compared to the Middle East and Egypt. So, so again, my, my, my lifelong quest in many respects has been to get us to pay attention to North Africa, which has many distinguishing features, including that... Um, The U.S. is viewed less negatively there. If you look at polling uh, and and, and the way the the U.S. is regarded, Libya has a generally favorable view of the U.S. relative to other Arab countries, and the U.S. engagements in North Africa, I think, have had more um, uh, positive uh, impacts on popular views of the U.S. And again, we have sort of citizen allies in North Africa that we ignore often. the uh, resources of North Africa are well known the oil and gas reserves in, in, in Libya and Algeria, which are tremendous, the phosphates in Morocco and Tunisia, the mineral wealth, the fish, and everything. But uh, the human resources, because of over 20 percent of GDP investments for decades now, <clears throat> excuse me, in the North African countries, mean that. Um, uh, we have, for example, more science on the shelf, uncommercialized science in North Africa than most regions of the world. Uh, we have a whole lot of manufacturing people don't pay a lot of attention to. We have thousands of cooperative ventures between European and North African companies uh, because the north-south axis of North African economics is more important than the east-west axis. Um, the, you know, We talk a lot about Southern Med security and we forget about north-south economic cooperation which is robust uh, and ever-growing across the Med. Um, Now, when the price of oil goes up, Algeria and Libya win... And Morocco and Tunisia lose. Morocco loses the worst out of Tunisia, Egypt, and Lebanon. The, the, uh, uh, and it's something we need to pay attention to, because Morocco needs help when the, these, these, these prices skyrocket more than any country. When the price goes down, Morocco is the biggest winner. And it has uh, taken that windfall of crashes in oil prices to invest heavily in renewable energy and other things at certain periods. So um, uh, uh, that, that that fluctuating price and the, and the impacts on North Africa economies is something also to pay attention to. I should also say, in um, developing the history of global politics course for American University, I discovered an interesting recent discovery, which I didn't know, which is that um, the oldest homo sapiens on the planet were discovered in Morocco. 315,000-year-old skeleton uh, remains older than the Ethiopian ones, older than the Northeastern African ones or the South African ones. Uh, and we have a, a sort of a new migration patterns being re, um, re, reconfigured with DNA analysis, which show that in many ways, uh, homo sapiens and human civilization arose more in North Africa than we realize. Um, and again, uh, uh, something to, uh, to to pay attention to. Um, in some ways, we all come from North Africa, is my point. Um, the uh, earliest people of North Africa, of course, were not the Berbers, which they claimed, the Amazigh people. But now we're discovering they were older civilizations, like the Capsians 60,000 years ago and others. And all of these homo sapien revolutions and human revolutions came from what climate change and mega droughts uh, and the coming and receding ice ages. And so, you know, Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. If you look back at human history, sort of everything we're going through and everything we're looking to go through has happened uh, to humans in many respects. And um, there are lessons to be learned as we look back. Now, um, uh, North Africa, has been hit hard by the same phenomena that this conference has been looking at. It's been hit hard by the energy crisis. It's been hit hard by the food crisis. Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt were three of the biggest Black Sea grain importers in the world. Uh, Only Lebanon, I think, got rocked more by the the food insecurity um, uh, created by Ukraine. Um, And of course, the climate crisis is hitting North Africa particularly hard as well. But the instabilities of North Africa now are aggravated by those things, but I would say not caused by those things. And the instabilities in North Africa are (laughs) man-made, like most crises, and have to do with uh, power contests. And we have power contests across the region which are uh, um, uh, not endemic, not constant, um, but persistent and hard to purge. And there are forces against change as strong as forces for change across our region. Now, um, uh, before I dive down into the country by country quick analysis, I'd also like to say that in my top 10 list given at last year's NACUSAR conference, um, which you can go back and look at on YouTube, I believe, um, I had a top 10 list of sort of what everyone gets wrong about North Africa or needs to focus on. and. Um, one of them was uh, don't overestimate or underestimate Chinese and Russian in, inroads uh, into North Africa. And I think uh, we need to sort of right size our sense of the Russian and Chinese threats in North Africa, whether the Russian Wagner Group and what they're up to and, 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 and what you know minerals the Russians are after and other access points and what the Chinese are up to, whether it has to do with ports. And I mean, I was involved in the um, initial uh, knowledge production for the IRI research. Recent report on China Africa and what I discovered in my research which surprised me was that um, China was pulling out of many areas in Africa and reducing its imprint as it sort of uh, recalibrated and right-sized what it was doing and I think it's wrong for us to see Belt and Road as some sort of you know permanently expanding Chinese bogeyman that needs to be confronted but rather it's uh, China on an interesting global learning curve <laughs> and recalibrating itself in turn and it's actually leaving places where there are opportunities Opportunities for new investment by others um, or, or improvements in local governance or local uh, structures for investment where uh, those improvements would have to be made for anybody to invest. Um, now uh, uh, going to the, the countries, um, when I spoke last year it was all about elections. Um, it still is. Um, elections are not the panacea or the only way or the only thing Libya needs to get out of its current uh, crisis. But it's a sine qua non for progress, because both governments' mandates have expired. Both governments are relatively corrupt. Both governments are pretty much dismissed by the younger, the under 40s of Libyans that want to replace them with new, um, uh, new leaders. Um, and uh, we all sort of... Um, uh, make a big mistake I think by backing either the western or the eastern government is sort of where to put our marbles in terms of Libya's future because um, there's so little support for them among the population. Yes, the western Libyans will defend themselves against Haftar's repeated attacks to the last man. You know, uh, Yes, um, um, the eastern grievances which Haftar has captured are real and Qaddafi's uh, uh, underdevelopment of the east and south are something that needs to be compensated more, and the answer is not just equal distribution of oil benefits, but actually greater investment in the East and the South. Uh, um, so that has never really been, been fully addressed, and that's why, you know, in many reasons, the Eastern Federalists have supported Heftar. But in the end, um, Libya's future lies in the democratic transition that it started. In 2011, had successful elections in 2012, um, had um, relatively unsuccessful elections nationally in 2014, but continued to have elections in the West right through to the present at the municipal level. Um, And Libyans want democracy. They don't want strongman rule, um, uh, which is what they're getting from the East and and, and others. Uh, And so um, we we, we get on the wrong side of Libyan youth at our own peril um, or by falling in the trap of tribal solutions when Qaddafi's failed tribal strategy alienated all of the uh, Libyan youth and none of Libya's hundreds of militias is named after a tribe because that's not where legitimacy lies in Libya. No, the future of Libya is is where young Libyans wanted to go, which is in a, a democratic direction with a fully accountable and transparent distribution of, of petrocarbon receipts um, for development, period. Um, and, and, and And the way to get there is through elections. Um, on Tunisia, um, Kai Saeed's coup has been a failure. Um, it's gone from, um, so he's gone from 75 to 80 percent support to. supported and falling precipitously. Um, Even his most ardent supporters, who I've been interviewing lately, say, um, we we, we agreed with the, they call it a coup, we agreed with the July 25th coup, but we uh, don't like the guy who did it. He needs to go. Um, but but Tunisians haven't figured out how to get rid of a duly elected president who then seized all power. You know, academics had a hard time with it. Was it an, an auto-golpe uh, auto on the Latin American style? Was it a... Uh, what was this? When a duly, legitimately elected president then closes all the other branches of government and says, I'm in control of everything. Um, um, the, the, the economic crisis is getting considerably worse in Tunisia. No sugar, no oil, no rice, no even bottled water uh, you can't find in markets on a lot of days now. Um, and the IMF um, negotiations, which were nearly completed in August of 2021, have stalled again. And we have sort of a, a chance at a new IMF deal of not $4 billion, but $2 billion. And even the labor union Ustete, said that the public sector bill is too large. That's the main issue. Um, and this government has done a terrible job of negotiating with the IMF. And they might even lose their place at FIFA at the, at the World Cup because of in, government interference in the football federation. I mean, right. uh, there's there's almost nothing that this government or this uh, president is doing right, in particular because, and I have this on the highest sources of people close to him this president doesn't care about economics he cares about a strange Qaddafist vision of direct democracy without political parties where he's in control of things him him and the the pop the, the, the population which he th- thinks he can rally um, and uh, and so tunisia's going uh, swiftly in the wrong direction despite my friend nech being the tri- minister, prime minister she has very little power and um, I can't even say much um, publicly. Um, The um, situation in Algeria is um, uh, uh, stable but not progressing. Um, Algeria held a very successful, I think, Arab League summit, which just ended after a three-year hiatus. Uh, They were right to refocus things on Palestinians, who've really gotten nothing out of the Abraham Accords, um, uh, and to focus on Libya, and to focus on sovereignty and territorial integrity. I found it very instructive, given that we think that Algeria is a Russian ally, that um, Lavrov left his meeting in Algiers with a, I respect the Algerian position, not Russia and Algeria are allies because it, Algeria, which is so sovereignist, has a hard time stomaching uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, but um, you know, hasn't has, has taken this sort of radically neutral position for geopolitical reasons. But it doesn't even square with Algerian history and Algerian political. Uh, so you know, and that's one of the reasons why Algeria is maintaining its oil and gas sales to Spain and Italy and increasing them. Uh, will be increasing them over time. Um, uh, Algeria just, I'll st- just say one more thing. Um, for the first time, the Ministry of Defense had a meeting with the US ambassador. And there was a very public post about it on the Ministry of Defense website. And the n- new ambassador is making real inroads. And I, I've been strongly advocating that the US government engage more deeply with Algeria, particularly on Tunisia and Libya, and a number of other regional Sahel, a number of other regional issues, uh, where there are. there is a big opportunity right now. Um, on uh, uh, Morocco, um, uh, the uh, okay. US recognition of Morocco's claim to Western Sahara, the uh, US is the only country in the world that did it, um, has aggravated the situation with, um, uh, with Algeria, which cut off relations last summer. Um, there were a lot of other things going on, uh, targeting of Algerian phones, and 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 um, you know by with 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 the cyber hacking and 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 um, statements the Israeli minister made on Moroccan soil, which Algerians found provocative, and other things. But we are in a low grade state of war again between um, Paul Ozzario and Morocco, um, and uh, uh, the, the lowest point in Algerian Moroccan relations in a long time, and. And really, no end in sight. Uh, Morocco is sort of doubling down uh, on pressuring its allies bilaterally um, to, you know, increase their support of its position, without taking any positive steps at the UN on negotiations in favor of their position, without um, really doing much to. Um, to, to attenuate the uh, the issues in its in its um, that Morocco could take steps to improve. So, you know, unfortunately, Morocco, which has so much promise and so much human capital and so much innovation and so much. Um, uh, alignment with uh, other U.S. goals um, is is by doubling down on the Western Sahara issue um, uh, and then trying to use the U.S. recognition as leverage to, to sort of pressure and bully other countries into getting in line with its Western Saharan claims. And by the way, it only controls 78% of the territory, not even 100%, but we've somehow recognized their claim over areas they don't even control. Um, the uh, uh, I, I believe Morocco is hurting itself. Um, I think uh, I've been saying for decades that as Morocco democratizes, the Western Sahara issue begins to go away because what the always don't want is to be under the Moroccan Ministry of Interior. Uh, they they don't want um, to be uh, forced uh, to do this or, or say that or believe this or you know they they, they don't want that type of authoritarian autocratic control, um, and so. Um, you know, I, you won't find a bigger backer of, of Morocco's aspirations than me, and, and I've worked on many, many projects in Morocco, the Technopolis, renewable energy projects, uh, uh, the, the you know, the wind energy projects, uh, um, uh, all types of entrepreneurship. Uh, uh, Moroccans that I've been hearing in this conference are lovely people to work with. <laughs> Please hire them. <laughs> you know, they're amazing. Um, but uh, until we have a resolution of the Western Sahara conflict, North Africa will remain the lowest regional trading area in the world. It has the least trade uh, because of the closed uh, Moroccan-Algerian border, which takes 1-2% to off of Moroccan GDP, according to the um, Peterson Institute. I gave a speech once in Ujda, Morocco, on opening the border uh, to about 500 people and uh, made an impassioned plea about... um, Opening the border with Algeria. And uh, uh, the dean of the university came up to me at the end of the speech and said, You realize the whole room is. Uh Against what you said, the, they want a closed border. Algeria, it's a bunch of terrorists and drug dealers. And I said that's interesting because I've been over in Tlemcen, and they say the Moroccans are a bunch of terrorists and drug dealers, you know. And and yet, you know, the the, the the number of Moroccans and Algerians who cross the border illegally every day is in the tens of thousands because of all the smuggling across that border. Uh, of course, this region has a lot of smuggling across it in general, you know. And it does nobody any good uh, to have these brother. Um, enemies uh, 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 at odds over, you know, something that could be negotiated, which is a power sharing deal for the control of the area south of Morocco, which, uh, you know, the, the parameters of which I think have long been evident to a lot of people, but no one has taken the hard work of investing in um, in, in finalizing that solution. Um, with that, I'd be happy to take any questions you have, uh, Duke, or, or anyone else? Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you, Dr. Uh, Lawrence. In the um, interest of uh, recovering uh, lost time or delayed time, I hope you will uh, uh, bear with us if we uh, hold on the questions until at the break. Uh, Anyone, everyone come up to Dr. Lawrence, put your question to him. He he couldn't be more accessible, amenable, and forthcoming. Uh, to, to address your needs, your concerns, your, your interests, your, your curiosity about Arab North Africa. This is the first time that we have provided this degree of, of focus on those four often overlooked and uh, underappreciated and, uh, uh, and neglected countries that um, have, after all, America's first friend which is what, what Morocco was, had recognized the United States during the early years of the fledgling American <laughs> Republic when someone called George Washington was, was alive uh, there. And the, the disputes between Morocco and Algeria are real, it's and the stakes are real. Yet no. And the involvement of China and Russia must not be overlooked. Uh, their interests uh, are competitive. Uh, with America's and other Western and uh, different geographical uh, regions, countries' uh, interests. So we need to pay much more attention to Arab North Africa, and Dr. Lawrence is a North Star in terms of of alignment in this regard. Um, uh, There are time just for uh, a few questions here. Regarding Algeria, Morocco, I mean, um, Morocco uh, was scared in the 1990s that the United States would back off from its funding of the United Nations uh, unit that monitors the southern region of Morocco to make sure, to try to, to, to deter the breakout of, a, of an armed conflict between Algeria and Morocco. Uh, Algeria would love to have a, uh, an ability to prevail in this conflict with Morocco because look at Algeria's coastline on uh, Arab North Africa, we don't have a map up here, uh, but you can have one In figuratively speaking in your mind, and that would swing around underneath the southern reaches of morocco and all the way over to uh, the atlantic ocean Uh, algeria is as important as it is geographically uh, and in the eyes of uh, uh, the geologists because of ExxonMobil's considerable investment and involvement and engagement in the southern reaches of, of Algeria. And for many um, uh, people in our Congress, the Congressional Black Cau- Caucus, for example, uh, they have looked at Algeria as the one country, perhaps arguably more than any other on the planet, that paid a dearer per capita price to win their national sovereignty anyway, you and transfer from colonial rule well, to political independence and that territorial integrity. At that independence, one out of eight Algerians was an orphan. I don't know if any of you have seen the Battle of Algiers, you know what we're talking about. Or read the book if you haven't uh, seen the Quasar documentary film uh, there. So, would you comment or elaborate a bit further, Dr. Lawrence, on this Algeria-Morocco conundrum and the implications?
0: Of um, the so, so, so much to say. I think. I think one thing that I think is useful here. Um, I, I wrote a piece for Salon.fr, the French Salon, um, uh, some years ago about sort of what's in it for Algeria and Morocco. And I think we, the, the pro-Morocco camp tends to sort of Instrumentalize and simplify the Algerian position, and the pro-Algeria camp since st- to instrumentalize and uh, and and. Um and oversimplify the moroccan position but it, but if but if i can oversimplify a little bit i i, I go back to boutflicka's statement in the former president boutflicka statement in algeria in 2006 when he said the Sahrawi cause is sacré pour nous it's sacred for us and and Saharawi independence for us is like our own independence mm-hmm. which gets back to the how how much Algeria's war for independence with France uh, um, uh, guides Algerian thinking on everything. Um, from the Moroccan perspective, Morocco is subject to, among many other things during the colonial period, a divide and conquer strategy, and sees itself as carved up into the French zone and the Spanish zone and the uh, the international zone in Tangiers, and then saw the Western Sahara being lopped off from Morocco, which never really happened, because Western Sahara was a part of Morocco through um, the Beya. Through tribal mm-hmm. allegiances at times in history, but not other times, um, uh, you know Morocco controlled all the way down to Timbuktu and beyond at certain times, and then when the Sultan was unpopular, the Sultan would only control the area around Fez. You know and so, so our notions of borders I think are, are often wrong here, uh, which is sort of what the ICJ found when they looked at the history. It, they said you know, the ICJ decision 1975 said it's not that Morocco doesn't have a historical claim. they do have a historical claim. They did control this area. At times, it's that the the sovereignty of the people, the choice of the people of the Sahara, is trumps the historical claims. That's that's the uh, which is what the UN General Assembly had voted um, uh, in 1975. So, so you know that that it all started with the ICJ decision, and then the Green March followed, uh, sort of in protest against it. But the um, but the 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 core. Position of the Algerians, I don't think will ever change, and the core position of the Moroccans, I don't think that it will ever change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, we're, how do we get to a solution? It's some sort of power sharing, right? It's some sort of co-sovereignty. It's some sort of which could have been part of the Moroccan autonomy plan, but hasn't been uh, because mm-hmm. the because the Saharawi don't really control their own sovereignty, really, you know, on the ground or or in under the plan uh, in, in ways that would be palatable for them so um, so here we are and then and then countries are being told you know you must um, you must accept the Moroccan autonomy plan or we'll rush your border with migrants or we'll cut off trade with you or well and that sort of um, strong arm uh, tactics um, has some, short-term effects, but it doesn't really solve the issue. The issue is solved when negotiators sit down and determine the the future of this of this land in a way that serves the interests of the people there and they agree to it rather than being
1: forced to agree to it. Thank you. And Might you further elaborate on the inability of the four or the three or the two to come together, if only bilaterally, and have as a building block uh, something of greater regional cooperation. In uh, the uh, 1990s, um, the four uh, countries that you just mentioned uh, proclaimed uh, an Arab uh, Maghreb uh, Union. And uh, this was patterned on the theoretical construct of the Gulf Cooperation Council and the same thing with the Arab Cooperation Council which had to do with Egypt and Iraq, Jordan and uh, Yemen and the PLO. Uh, Some regarded them as the League of Losers in the sense that they all wanted to be members of the Gulf Cooperation Council. But they're so different from the Gulf Cooperation Council countries that it would have skewed the focus, the interests, the objectives, the uh, concerns, the needs of the six contiguous neighborly GCC countries, uh, that uh, they were neglected and rejected. But the more natural one, of course, was Arab uh, North Africa, except if he peeled off the layer to see that. At that time, you had revolutionary Muammar Gaddafi. It's kind of hard to have imagined Muammar Gaddafi playing tennis with Mohammed Sadis or Mohammed VI, the, the king of, uh, of Morocco. No, no more uh, stark differences could be uh, imagined. Um, why and how, how and when might there be a Mandela? Might there be a De Gaulle? Might there be a, a Nadenauer? Might there be a Wiley Brandt? Might there be a John Monet? Very good. Uh, to bring it together. If only two of these four contiguous Arab North African countries, they are enormously important, even though we don't uh, show our awareness and appreciation adequately or effectively of that importance.
0: So um, as I alluded to earlier the Arab Maghreb Union fails on the Moroccan Algerian failure to come to agreement over Western Sahara. Um, uh, Now it's a myth that the AMU does nothing. I worked a lot with the Arab Maghreb Union over the years and culturally, educationally, scientifically they do a lot Um, and I've worked with them and there's a lot of interesting projects but on the political and the economic side nothing happens. Um, The Arab Maghreb Union interestingly was the result of um, what you were talking about at the end. We had an alliance between Algeria and Tunisia, sort of a little bit on the model of the other, you know, Egyptian and Syrian uh, attempts, you know, way back when. Uh, And then there was a Morocco-Libyan alliance in 1984, right after the 83 Alliance, and then that sort of led to the arab Maghreb Union in 89. But back then, uh, you know, with the the European Union becoming strong and unified, the idea was um, you can get more as a block than you can get yes. as a um, individual countries. Unfortunately, there's new trade theory that says individual companies actually countries can actually get more from a block than, than a block can. Sales, eh? So, for example, if I'm selling tomatoes to Europe and I want to get around a tariff, it's easier for me to do it from Moroccan tomatoes than to do it from Maghrebi tomatoes. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? So, there's actually been uh, uh, many reasons why the Arab Maghreb Union um, hasn't always been able to act as a block, effectively, politically, or economically, even beyond um, the... Um, the failure of Morocco and Algeria to to, to, to come to solution and agreement over the um, uh, the Western Sahara issue, um, and 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 that gets at sort of our our sort of general global understanding of how, you know markets, open markets, work, free trade agreements. Look at the U.S. free trade agreements. Uh, The U.S. free trade agreement with Morocco was hugely beneficial for the United States and barely helped Morocco sell products in the United States, not because Morocco doesn't have wonderful products to sell, but they couldn't scale to U.S. demand, Mm -hmm. uh, which gets back to that (laughs) size issue, you know, and the U.S. uh, should have been investing heavily, and I've Suggested they do, and they haven't in certain ways, in helping Morocco uh, scale production up to what sales across the United States might look like, um, which would make that agreement work for them. Uh, but in the end, um, uh, um, a blocks can't replace strong bilateral relationships. Blocks can do certain things. Um, uh, and uh, and unfortunately, when it comes to mediation of disputes, um, it's going to probably be more the UN than it's going to be in any sort of regional. Oh. Regional configurations that will
1: help us uh, solve these conflicts. And okay. thank you, Dr. Lyon.